Welcome to the Johns Hopkins University Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeske with the JHU Press Journals Division. Today's podcast is a conversation between Dr. Rob Shoemaker and Professor Carl Jones. Dr. Rob Shoemaker is an evolutionary biologist who currently serves as the president and CEO of the Indianapolis Zoo. Professor Carl Jones is a global hero whose innovative techniques have saved numerous species from extinction and shaped the future of the conservation world. Having spent the majority of his career on Mauritius, an island nation in the Indian Ocean, he has pioneered ways to conserve the island's wildlife and ecosystems. When Carl landed in Mauritius more than 40 years ago, there were only four Mauritius kestrels left. They were the world's rarest bird at the time. He spent the next decade restoring the kestrel population, and now there are more than 400 in the wild. But the work didn't end with kestrels. He has led the recovery efforts for nearly a dozen of the nation's other wildlife, spanning birds, reptiles, and mammals. In 2016, Carl was awarded the Indianapolis Prize, often dubbed the Nobel Prize of Conservationism. The Indianapolis Prize is a biennial prize awarded by the Indianapolis Zoo to individuals for extraordinary contributions to conservation efforts affecting one or more animal species. Saving Endangered Species, Lessons in Wildlife Conservation from Indianapolis Prize Winners is a new book edited by Rob Shoemaker and published by the Johns Hopkins University Press. Carl Jones is among the Indianapolis Prize winners who contributed to the book, sharing their stories of conservation work. Recently, Rob sat down with his friend Carl to catch up and hear more about the incredible work he has done and how much left there is to do in saving the Earth's wildlife. So one of the very best things for me as president and CEO of the Indianapolis Zoo is the remarkable people that I get to interact with and that I have the pleasure to meet, especially those associated with the Indianapolis Prize. And I'm just immensely happy to be able to have a conversation with my uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Carl Jones today, uh, who is, one of the most entertaining and enjoyable and wonderful guys I've had the pleasure to meet in a very, very long time. So Carl, I'm so happy that you're here. I'm so happy that we have the chance to talk today. Um, so uh, I was thinking about you prior to this uh, podcast. And of course, you're the 2016 recipient of the Indianapolis Prize. I'm sure we'll talk about that as we go along. Um, but the thing that everybody says to me about you uh, when your name comes up is the fact, and this is a fact, that there is no other conservationist credited with saving as many animal species as you. You are directly responsible for saving a long list of animal species among them the Mauritius kestrel, the pink pigeon, the echo parakeet, the Rodriguez fruit bat, and on and on and on. I'd like to, I've never had the opportunity or the thought to ask you, but what does it feel like? How do you react when you hear that, that, that you have saved more animal species than anyone else on the planet? Well, I usually think that I got very lucky 
that I was in a situation where I, I could actually <laughs> do that. But actually, when you save a species, what does that actually mean? Yes, you've increased its population and it's now reasonably safe. But actually, you don't feel as if you've done the job. You just want to go on to the next stage. And I think this is one of the most wonderful things about working with species is that you work with species and you get drawn into working with other species, trying to actually save them or work with them. But what's really interesting, and this is something which the conservation community have yet to really understand, and that is that when you work with species, it actually starts driving the restoration of whole ecosystems. It doesn't necessarily happen overnight. It can take decades to happen, but it's a definite process that, that occurs. And I've been working now in Mauritius for over four decades. And we started with the pink pigeon and the kestrel and the echo parakeet and a few others. And some of our goals were quite modest. And when we achieved those goals, I kept thinking, well, we're not there yet. We've got something more to do. And before we knew it, we were actually negotiating with government about setting up national parks. We were restoring offshore islands. We were thinking about other endangered species. And I think that one of the things that we don't realize is that species, more species are savable and very savable, but it very often takes a long time. So you've got to commit decades. You've got to have a certain tenacity. And when you're doing it, it actually brings in all these other things. And if, you, and if you bring in enough people with enough talent, you can actually develop a sort of groundswell of a conservation movement, which helps build whole systems in which those species belong. And this has happened organically in Mauritius. And if we look at projects worldwide, we see it happening everywhere. But what tends to happen is that most people are involved for such short periods of time, they don't actually see how powerful species are for restoring or being catalysts to help restore whole systems. And that's one of the wonderful things that I've learned through working with species. And have I saved those species? I've saved them for the time being, but actually we've got a long way to go. And we should be thinking about developing long-term visions, fitting the species in, and developing this much bigger vision. And I tell all my staff and all the people I work with that we have to have a 100-year vision for our programs. Where do we want to be next year, but also where do we want to be in 10 years' time, 50 years' time, or 100 years' time? And you know, they always say to me, don't be silly. Nobody can think 100 years into the future. Well, we might not know what the world's going to look like in 100 years time, but I've been working in Mauritius now for four decades. So 40% of, of 100, I've, you know, I've been there. So it's really not that far ahead. And I think that one of the problems we have is that so many conservationists are only thinking three, four, five years ahead, whereas we should actually be thinking a lot further than that. And also, let's be bold. Let's think about saving the wonderful species, but also the systems in which they live. So let's save orangutans, but also 
how do we actually frame that so we can save the whole ecosystem? And this is what we should be doing. And so species people really do have the key to this much bigger vision of how we can actually start rebuilding the world, rebuilding systems, reversing you know, the awful trends that we see in the loss of biodiversity and starting to reverse some of these huge changes that are happening to the planet like climate change. And it's all doable. And you know, it's, it's quite straightforward. You can go from step to step, but you can't do it overnight. So you do have to have a certain long-term tenacity. And that's what we want, people to get out there and do it. So Carl, you talk about 40 years, the past 40 years of, of your career, and, and thank goodness uh, th there's at least a couple decades or more left of field work for you. So that's a good thing. Uh, so you're no, nowhere close to being done. Um, can you back up a little bit? Uh, how did you come on to this idea that this was something that was even a possibility for you as a career? How did it start for you? And I have this um, uh, interesting thought because I, I, I know in your chapter in the Saving Endangered Species book, you, you start your, your chapter talking about yourself in your 20s. Well, how did you get to that point? Because I've, I've read that as a kid, you actually were breeding Mauritius kestrels as a kid. Is that true? Uh, I wasn't breeding Mauritius kestrels, but I was breeding common kestrels. Common kestrels, okay. And as a, as a young lad, I used to keep animals and I loved animals. And I kept thinking, wow, what a wonderful way to find out about creatures. I love that intimacy of looking after animals and learning about them. And I used to keep waifs and strays. So I had injured birds and I had young animals that had fought, that had been uh, abandoned and so on. And I had a pair of kestrels and I was able to breed these kestrels and to rear lots of young. And I kept thinking, wow, this is a real powerful tool. We could actually take rare birds and breed them in captivity and put them out into the wild. And, you know, this is a naive view as we all now know, but it was something which struck me as being really quite potent. And then as an undergraduate, when I was in college, I heard about the plight of the Mauritius kestrel. And at the time the population had declined, they only knew of four birds in the wild and it was considered that it would go extinct. And I remember going to a lecture that was given by Professor Tom Cade, and he showed a picture of a Mauritius kestrel on the screen. And he said, we're working on this species on the island of Mauritius. We only know of four birds. And it seems likely that it's gonna become extinct. And I thought, what? I could save that. <laughs> and so after his talk, I went and had a chat to him and I said, excuse me, but I'd like to go to Mauritius. I'd like to go and try and save the Mauritius kestrel. And well, he was, was, was very sort of genial at the time and said some very nice things, but I couldn't get it out of my mind that there was this bird that could be saved by captive breeding. And I was very lucky at the time that I knew a number of people who 
had contacts with the World Wildlife Fund and other organizations. And I put my name forward as somebody who would like to go and run the program in Mauritius. And at the time, there were lots of problems in getting the birds into captivity to look after them properly. There were some political issues. There was funding issues, all the usual things you see around endangered species programs. But nevertheless, I felt this was really the job for me. And then one day I uh, had a telephone call and I was told, do I want the job in Mauritius? And uh, would I be prepared to go out there for one or two years? And I was actually told that I was going out there to actually close the program down because the program had been going for several years and everybody felt that it wasn't going anywhere. There were very few birds. The few birds that had been in captivity had done very, very poorly. And they wanted to hand the program over to young Mauritians. And of course, that's really laudable and a wonderful thing to do. But big point was there were no resources in Mauritius and there were no expertise to do this work. So they were essentially consigning the Mauritius kestrel to extinction. And I uh, went to Mauritius and I just couldn't live with that idea that after a year or two, I'd be leaving and handing it over to people who I knew didn't have the resources to carry it on. So after I'd been in Mauritius a year, I went and saw Gerald Durrell in the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust and we discussed the plight and I spoke to a number of other people and I got a commitment from Jerry that they would find the resources for me to stay in Mauritius. And that was one of the biggest dreams I could ever have to be able to stay there for a few years to work with kestrels. And I was very fortunate that they found me some money and I was able to stay on in Mauritius. And well, the rest is history, as they say. I lived there for two decades and I've been working there now over four decades. And although I now live in Wales, I spend a large chunk of every year in Mauritius working with my Mauritian colleagues on the conservation of the Mauritius kestrel, but also all the other species we work on there. So Carl, for, for folks that maybe have never seen a Mauritius kestrel, um, can you describe these lovely birds? Well, to me, it's the most wonderful creature. And I can honestly say that for a large part of my life, I've dreamt about them nearly every night. Every waking hour, I've been thinking about them. I was for a time totally obsessed by them. It's a small little falcon about the size of a North American kestrel, but it has short rounded wings and it's a forest dwelling bird. And it has a beautiful white breast with lovely spots and heart shapes on it. And you know, you ask me what it looks like. And of course, a lot of people will be thinking about gaudy parrots and some of the other spectacular creatures in the world. But what you've got to realize is that every species, when you get to know it, is really quite beautiful. And it's really quite magnificent. And it's a matter of getting to know it and understand it and to be able to participate in, in this world. And that's what I did with the Mauritius Kestrel. So 
it's still my favorite bird or one of my favorite birds and i think it is absolutely exquisite but it is essentially a small little falcon it looks beautiful but it also flies beautifully as well it flies among the canopy catching lizards they have a beautiful aerial display where they circle up in the spring and they stoop and dive at each other a lot of them live in the black river gorges in mauritius and they ride the updrafts off of those uh, of the big cliffs and i've seen them rising up until they're out of sight and then i've also seen them go up so high they're just a speck closing their wings and dropping down plummeting to the ground so when you're talking about the beauty of the, the bird we've got to be thinking about the bird itself but also the bird in its natural environment and the wonderful things it can do that's an incredible description uh and it it makes me think about um uh some of the things you detail in your chapter about the birds that you've uh, raised and then reintroduced. And I, I, I'm particularly struck at, at one of the things that many people would find quite unorthodox but that I love. Uh, and that's um, how you uh, actually kept track of the birds after they'd been released in the wild. Uh, and um, you did it in quite a, a wonderful way. I wonder if we're thinking about the same uh, way that you used to keep track of the birds. Well, what I used to do was that when we released the birds, they were hand-reared birds, so they were nice and tame. And I thought it was really an advantage to have tame birds, provided they weren't going to be killed by people or predators. It's actually a great advantage. And as a young boy, when I used to keep birds in my back garden and train, uh, keep kestrels, I also used to train birds. And so I love the idea of developing this close bond with creatures. And so the very first kestrels we released, I trained them. I uh, put the birds out in an artificial nest site. And when they started to come out and when they fledged, I'd go up there every day and I'd provide them with a mouse, uh, a dead mouse for food. And I'd whistle to them and I'd throw the mouse and they'd come down and take it. And before long, they would come as soon as they saw me and I'd provide them with a white mouse. And I also did more or less the same with the wild birds. I was able to train the wild birds so I could whistle and they'd fly down and I could feed them. And this meant that when I wanted to census them and find out where they all were, I just had to go into their territory, whistle, and they'd fly down and they'd, they'd come and say hello. And I, I could do this with quite a large number of birds. And uh, at the height of our reintroduction program, there were probably 50 trained birds I could call in at any one time. And so I, if I wanted to, I could spend the whole day just wandering around seeing my birds. But what was really fascinating about all that was that I got to see how they all interacted. I'd have the territory, territorial birds coming in, and I'd also get floating birds, birds that didn't have territories that would used to come in very furtively and they used to come in and they'd be looking all around to see that there was nobody there and they'd come in and take a mouse and then they'd disappear and so I got a wonderful feel about how this whole community of birds work together and how about how they actually interacted and this is an approach I've always had I really believe that 
when we're studying birds, we need that intimacy. When we're studying animals, we need that intimacy. And uh, I'm a great believer. I'm a scientist, so I believe in objectivity. But I also believe that if we really want to ask the most important questions about our animals, we also have to be able to empathize with them. So we have to be able to understand our animals, to be able to empathize with them, to be able to think like them, to be intuitive about their needs, and then, if necessary, stand back and ask objective questions. So I've always liked that. And I've always liked that interplay between really getting to know the birds personally, and also being a scientist to be able to stand back and look at it objectively. So although I, th I think of myself very much as a scientist, I'm also, I think, at deep down, I'm basically just a naturalist. And I like, I like being in, you know, close to the animals. To be able to stand back and to be objective and distance myself is anathema to me. I just don't like that idea. I want to be close to animals. So when we talk about Mauritius kestrels, uh, it's an unqualified success story. And it's fair from your description to say that at one time they were the rarest bird on the planet. Is that fair? Um, it was the rarest bird on the planet, and it did go down to just four individuals. It went down to four before I actually went to Mauritius. But when I arrived in Mauritius in the late 1970s, there were probably more than four, but we could only actually find two pairs at the time. So the population was still critically, critically endangered. But what's really interesting about the Mauritius kestrel was that as a result of our work, we've got the population up to about 500 or so individuals. But in recent years, the population has declined a little bit. It's still in good shape. There's still hundreds there. But because we've taken our eye off the ball and stepped back a little bit, one population has actually gone down and mm. it's going to need a lot more management with providing nest boxes and so on. And I think there's a very powerful lesson there that with critically endangered species, yes, we can restore the populations, but we also have to continue to look after those populations. A lot of people don't like that idea. They think we should be able to restore animals and then move on to the next one and they'll be fine. But what you've got to remember is that we have been mistreating, misusing the world for centuries, if not millennia. And we can't be expected to correct all those problems overnight. And I think we're learning that if we want to be really effective in cons conserving critically endangered species, we can do it. Very often it's not that difficult, but it does need a long-term commitment. And we're talking, take, talking about a commitment of decades. But as I mentioned earlier on, the good message is it takes decades, but if you do it correctly, that work will inspire work on other species and rebuilding whole systems. And I think this is something which the conservation community has yet to embrace. They're all thinking in terms of three and five years rather than this long-term vision. But to achieve great results, we've got to be committed for 
you know, decades, and then we will achieve very great things. So I love this description so much, and it, it makes me think of uh, your good colleague, uh, Dr. Patricia Wright, also an Indianapolis Prize uh, winner for her incredible work with lemurs in Madagascar. And uh, I, I recall a phrase that she uses all the time, and, and it's simply this, she says, conservation is never done that it, it, it's a continual process. I think you've illustrated that concept so beautifully when you talk about uh, the work with uh, Mauritius Kestrels and, and that this work continues and goes on. So as wonderful uh, 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 as the Mauritius Kestrels are and what an incredible story, it's just one of the species that, that is associated with your career. How about uh, uh, pink pigeons? Can you talk about uh, pink pigeons. It's it's such a such a great comparison with Mauritius kestrels. Well, the Mauritius kestrel was quite a challenge in terms of getting them to breed, and in terms of managing them and putting them back to the wild. And we all thought that um, pink pigeons were going to be a bit of a breeze. And we had some captive birds. And uh, in the early years in Mauritius, alongside the work on the uh, Mauritius kestrel, I was trying to breed pink pigeons in captivity. And of course, I thought, well, it's going to be very straightforward. We just put uh, a beautiful male and a beautiful female together and we'll breed them. And at the time, I was in touch with uh, a number of people worldwide, and they were all telling me that I had to manage the population very carefully in terms of its genetics. And I was in touch with some small population biologists who were advising me on which pairings would be the best. But when I put the ideal male in with the ideal female, invariably it wouldn't work. And uh, as, as a zoo person, you will know that compatibility is something which uh, um, animals don't necessarily like the partners you give them. <laughs> and we certainly found this to be the case in, with pink pigeons. And I found myself pairing up pink pigeons and then the male would beat up the female or sometimes the female would beat up the male. Uh, very often birds would go and hide in a corner and have something akin to a nervous breakdown. And so I was spending my time just moving birds around. But I was very lucky that I had a few pairs, so I was able to shuffle them around until I got compatible pairs. But of course, very, very often the compatible pairs would be fairly closely related, so genetically they wouldn't be appropriate. So I spent a lot of my early years in Mauritius being what I called a marriage guidance counsellor to pink pigeons, understanding their needs and trying to get these birds to breed. And one of the big problems we had with pink pigeons is that very often you'd get them to lay eggs and then they'd abandon the eggs. And so we developed a technique of taking those eggs and hatching them under foster doves and that worked quite well. But anyway, to cut a long story short, I spent many years learning how to breed pink pigeons. And then we had to, when we had lots of birds, we decided to put them back into the wild. But the big problem that we had was that the forest in Mauritius was so compromised. 500 years of habitat destruction, 500 years of degradation, 
cats, mongooses, introduced monkeys. The habitat is just so fragmented and poor, it couldn't support pink pigeons. And actually the wild population in 1990 went down to just nine or 10 individuals. So we had captive birds, but nowhere really to put them. And I kept thinking about this and I thought, well, I tell you what we should do is to release the birds, but monitor them closely and follow them and see what their needs are and then meet those needs. And we soon found out that the pink pigeons were suffering from seasonal food shortages that at certain times of the year, there just wasn't enough food in the forest. And this seemed counterintuitive to a lot of people because they see lush tropical forests, but they just weren't the seeds and flowers they needed. So we started to supplementally feed them. And I trained the birds to come back. <laughs> uh, they'd come to feeding stations and I'd feed them on various seed mixtures and they started to do really well. And they started to breed and they were just suffering from these seasonal food shortages. But then another problem happened. As soon as the birds started to go up in numbers, we found that they were disappearing and we didn't really know what it was for a while. And then one of my colleagues said, I bet it's wild cats, it's feral introduced cats. And it was, we put out some traps and we found that there were cats living in the forest, completely independent of human beings that had been there for hundreds of years. But of course, as soon as our pigeons were coming back to a particular feeding station, the cats also saw it as a feeding station and they started to feed on pink pigeons. So then we had to learn how to control the cats, which we, we do quite effectively. And the population of pink pigeons started to soar. So we've got pigeons back in the forests of Mauritius. The population was only nine or 10 in 1990. And today we have 500 pink pigeons flying around in Mauritius, but they are managed. They are looked after by feeding them and also by controlling predators like cats and introduced mongooses. But you know what's really interesting is that since we've had pink pigeons in the forest, there's been a lot more interest in restoring the whole forest. So with pink pigeons and Mauritius kestrels and other species we've been putting back, they're acting as a catalyst for rebuilding this system. And although we're not going to recreate the forest as it once was in its pristine state, at least we are learning how to put back a functional system with these species in it. And although I love zoos and I love captive animals and I think they have a huge role to play, isn't it better that we can have these species out in nature fulfilling some of their roles and under some form of natural selection even if we have to look after them by providing food for a few decades or maybe longer while we restore the forest. So I see it as these animals as being catalysts for that bigger vision that we all embrace. Wonderful. So Carl, I'd, I'd really like to talk about the transition from, uh, and you've mentioned it several times, the, the focus on species to ecosystems. 
before we do that, can you just run down the list of species that that have shaped your career? Well, in Mauritius, there's a whole host of species that mean so much to me. Of course, the Mauritius kestrel being the first one is one that has a very special place in my heart. But I've also worked on a whole range of other species, pink pigeons, echo parakeets, Rodrigues warbler, Rodrigues fody, round island petrel, which is a very rare seabird, a complex of three species. But I've also worked on lots of reptiles. Kelfish, skinks, lesser night geckos, Gunther's geckos, round island boas. And more recently, I've been working with tortoises. Not in a very, well, it's, a, it's quite a rare tortoise, the Aldabra giant tortoise, but I'm actually using these to help rebuild a system because Mauritius once had huge herds of tortoises, but they're all extinct. They all disappeared centuries ago. And I felt that if we wanted to rest restore a system and rebuild a system, we had to find some of the elements. And of course, pink pigeons and Mauritius kestrels are elements and some of the plants are, but what do you do if you've got extinct species? And we had these giant tortoises in Mauritius that are now gone. And I wanted to try and find something to fulfill their ecological role. And we did a number of studies and I consulted with lots of tortoise people and they convinced me that the flora of Mauritius would have been shaped by grazing and browsing by the tortoises. And when we look closely at some of the very rare plants in Mauritius, we found that they had adaptations for surviving with tortoises and some of them needed to be grazed and to be part of a big grazing climax. And in the absence of tortoise, tortoises, those species were becoming extinct. So I thought we need to bring back tortoises. And when I suggested to my colleagues, we needed to bring back an exotic introduced tortoise to replace the Mauritius tortoise, they all said I was totally mad. And they said, you can't put exotics on islands because they caused the problems in the first place. And I said, well, actually, these are gonna be ecological replacements. And they thought it was a terrible idea. And then I reframed it and I said, if we don't bring back tortoises, we will lose a whole community of plants. And those plant species are now down to tiny, tiny populations. So we need to bring back tortoises. And after 20 years of study and convincing people, I got agreement from the government to put tortoises on offshore islands. And that's what we've done. And we now have a population of over 600 giant tortoises on Round Island. They are spreading the seeds of the endemic palms and screw pines. They're spreading the seeds of endemic ebony trees and they're bringing back a grazing climax community. I'm not gonna live long enough to see that fully restored, but it's part of my 100 year vision. And I hope that in a hundred years time, we will have been able to restore Round Island and some of these other islands we're working on to something resembling the systems that were once there, but to be far more functional than they are now and helping a whole range of biodiversity. And I think there's lots of important lessons in that, in that 
we can rebuild systems. We can actually modify systems in some ways. And I think that one of the big problems that we've had in conservation is that we spend too much time looking backwards rather than looking forwards. A lot of people try always say, oh, we've got to try and restore the system as it once was. But very often we can't do that. So we need to be more creative and to think of how we can restore that species with a maximum number of elements, but perhaps sometimes with some novel elements as well. And I think that rather than being preservationists, we should be a lot more creative in the way we look at conservation. And I think that a lot of conservation thought in the past has actually limited the way we think about the world. The world is changing very rapidly. We're seeing massive climate change. The world is being modified at a huge rate. We cannot turn the clock back, but we can look forward creatively and rebuild or build systems that are functioning with sometimes lots of novel elements. So Carl, I'd like to quote you. I wanna read a short passage from your book, um, uh, which I, I, I find personally very, very meaning and, and, and talk about it a bit. And you start by saying that solutions can be found for the world's challenges and the future can sparkle. The techniques we have learned working on island species are applicable to all, and they put us in good stead when having to confront the challenges that are being wrought by climate and other human-induced change. Slowly, we are learning how to recover even the most endangered animals and plants, which means that if we can save the rarest, we can save them all. I love that. And it's what I believe. I really believe that. And it drives me. You know, there's too much doom and gloom. People say, oh, we can't do anything about this. We can't do anything about that. But once you start thinking negatively, you don't do anything. Whereas if you believe there's a solution, you can find one. And what's interesting is those solutions are very often not what you originally thought they'd look like, but in some ways they can be a lot more creative. And I think we've been hamstrung by looking backwards too much. But I really believe that in the future, we can really do a great deal to restore all those endangered species and to rebuild systems. And let's face it, we're going to have to do it. And it is people like the people that work in your zoos are going to make a really big difference. It is people who understand animals, who can take a lot of that knowledge and apply it in the field. I love zoos, but I'm also a zoo critic. I'm very skeptical about some of the things that zoos say. And we shouldn't be thinking about saving animals in zoos, but we should be thinking about saving animals and using zoo techniques to save them. And as I've talked about the pink pigeon, managing them in the wild, learning how to feed them and to control predators and control disease and provide nest boxes for kestrels and so on. All these techniques are captive management techniques, but being applied to free living and wild populations. The role of the zoo is to take zoo techniques 
into the wild. And I think that's what we're going to be doing in the future. So you and all your colleagues working in zoos have to think beyond the cages. That's brilliant. Brilliant. So I appreciate you pointing out the role that zoos have in all this. And I, and I can tell you plainly, um, uh, this is the inspiration for the Indianapolis Prize. Our, our motivation for the, giving the Indianapolis Prize every two years is to make sure the world hears about people like you. Because too often, I think conservationists are doing good work, maybe in obscurity, uh, and not getting the kind of recognition that they deserve. So uh, it's with immense pride that, that we um, uh, try to highlight the, the kind of work that, that you're doing and your colleagues are doing and make sure people hear from you directly. But that, but that makes me um, reflect on one other thought. Um, I'm really curious to know what motivates you personally. What, what gives you the incredible drive and stamina that you have? I never think of it like that because I really enjoy what I'm doing. So I don't see it as a huge problem to do these things, but it's something which I just love doing. And it's really quite interesting that when I'm in Mauritius and I go into the field, whether it's on a small island or whether I go and see a kestrel in the Black River Gorges, I really feel very moved. I feel alive. So it's something which is part of me. And the motivation is just one of trying to understand the world and trying to look after that great beauty, which means so very much to me and to humanity. So I don't see it as a job and I don't see it as, as a quest. I just see it as something that I love doing. And I love the thing that means the most to me is understanding the animals as a biologist but also understanding them individually as well. And I learned that from one of my mentors, Gerald Durrell. Jerry was a writer who loved animals, who set up the Jersey Zoo, the organization I now work for. And he loved individual animals, but he also loved them as a species. And I got that from him. And it's that connection with nature, which I think is so important. It's so important for me but I think it's important for humanity. And I think it's something that we're increasingly beginning to realize, but it's something which I think we need to encourage a lot more and to open people's eyes and hearts to the wonders of the world. For too long, people have been thinking in materialistic ways and thinking about just surviving day to day without realizing just how much nature can and does enrich their lives. I'm awfully glad that you mentioned um, Gerald Durrell and, and I can say his books um, helped shape my career as well. I, I devoured each one of them when, when I was a kid. Um, and I would encourage anybody uh, who's listening to this to, to pick up some of his books. I mean, they're easily available now. and They're absolutely wonderful about his adventures uh, as a very young man. Um, and I, I reflect on the fact, Carl, that um, your accomplishments have, have really changed the world in a way that benefits 
my kids and your kids, um, the, the legacy of what you've done is remarkable. Does that go through your mind? What, what, what value you've brought for generations to come, including your own kids? Does, does that go through your mind often? I don't frame it in quite the same way, but I like to think that I'm standing on the shoulders of people like Gerald Durrell. Jerry showed us how wonderful animals were. He showed us the value of captive breeding and of captive animals. But Jerry always saw it as a stepping stone. He saw zoos and he saw captive animals as moving towards the next step, which is getting them out into the wild. And I remember going with Jerry to Round Island many years ago, and he said, we've got to rebuild this whole system. So he was thinking all the time about animals and their place in nature. And what was really interesting was I said to him then, wouldn't it be great, Jerry, if we could bring tortoises back one day? And he agreed with me. He said, yeah, what a great idea, Carl. But I think one of the most powerful things that I got from Jerry was that individuals really can make a difference. And he made that very clear. And every time I saw him, he kept saying to me, you know, it's not committees that change the world. It's individuals. People go out there and do it. And I like to think that one of my legacies and perhaps my greatest legacy are some of the people that I've worked alongside. I've worked alongside a lot of students, a lot of volunteers, a lot of staff, and it's quite interesting that a lot of those have sort of progressed in, the, in their own particular fields far beyond anything and achieved things far beyond anything I could have ever achieved. So I see around me uh, young people who are, who've worked with me for a while, been inspired, not necessarily by me, but some of the things that we are doing. And together we have developed visions about what can be achieved in the future. And they've gone on and they've started to develop that vision much further. And thank you very much because as a result of the Indianapolis Prize, I've had a lot more profile. I've asked to give a lot more lectures. I do a lot more teaching, but also my organization, Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust and the Jersey Zoo, they have set up a Carl Jones Scholarship Fund. And a lot of people have put money into that. And part of my job, in the next 20 or 30 years, or perhaps the next 20 years, is going to be mentoring young people, showing them some of the, well, telling them about some of the approaches that we've developed and helping them develop their own programs. So in the last two years, as a result of the profile that I've got from the Indianapolis Prize, I've been to Brazil, Costa Rica, the Pacific, Tasmania, many corners of the world advising on critically endangered species there. And now with the scholarship fund, I am able to help mentor some of the young people from those countries long-term. So yes, I'm still gonna be working in Mauritius running the programs there, but as I get less able to do the field work, I'm never going to stop doing the field work, but as I can't quite climb up the mountains as I once did, I spend more time 
encouraging the next generation. And I think that is really very important. And I decided 20 years ago that one of the most important things I could do was to develop a succession plan, to think about how the work that I started can be handed over to other people. And I've done that and I'm still doing it and they're doing a far better job than I ever did. But it's, a it's very nice to think that they're taking those ideas and taking them a step further in the same way that I was able to take some of Jerry's views and take them a step further. I remember Jerry coming to Mauritius and seeing the tame kestrels. And up until this point, he'd only ever seen the kestrel flying in the distance. And I said to him, I said, Jerry, I can take you into the Black River Gorges and show you a kestrel. So he goes, oh, well, he says, uh, that'd be good. He says, but you know, I'm not as fit as I was, so I can't go to wander too far. I said, that's all right, Jerry. I'll be able to show you when, a, you know, quite close to the road. And he said, well, I better bring my binoculars. I said, well, you might not need those. So I took Jerry into the forest and uh, we went up this track and we came to an opening and Jerry stepped out and I said, hang on, Jerry. And I whistled and down came a Mauritius kestrel and he was blown away. He was like a child's brimming with excitement. He goes, my God, it's only a few feet away. And I said, yeah, well, I've trained it. And I said, well, look, what I'm doing, Jerry, is that I'm taking captive breeding techniques that you were a pioneer of and applying them in the field. And he was literally moved to tears. And he said, well, I never thought I'd see that. And I felt I could take some of Jerry's ideas and develop them a step further. And I now see my students doing exactly the same with me. And so we've got people all over the world doing their bit. And I have to thank you again because you're helping with one of my students in Costa Rica working with the great green macaw. A number of years ago, you know, after we'd restored the echo parakeet, I said to myself, well, the techniques we use on echo parakeets can be used on other parrots. And I thought to myself, can I think of other species where this would work? And I thought, wow, the great green macaw in Costa Rica, what a wonderful species to work on. And I have one of my colleagues there, Sam Williams, who I've known since he was 16. He's now running that program. And I have to thank you, the Indianapolis Zoo, for helping us. I know you give him some resources to help him with that work. But you know, Sam has made a long-term commitment to that. And he is taking my visions and my ideas and taking them a step further. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that how it should be? So that's what brings me real hope for the future, is seeing these other people developing our ideas and taking them further. Well, I'm awfully glad you brought up Sam Williams. He's a wonderful guy and uh, is doing tremendous work. And we're awfully proud to provide support to the Macaw Recovery Network, his, his organization. Um, and, um, you know, Carl, you talk about all these people that you have mentored and continue to mentor. And, and I can tell you, um, every single one of them is lucky to have you, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, as, as we say in the, in the beginning of the book, these are the, the stories of the greatest conservationists of our time. And, and, and you are one of them. You are one of the greatest conservationists of our generation. And it's a privilege to know you and it's a privilege to talk to you. And um, 
on on behalf of, of of our zoo and all of us involved with the Indianapolis Prize, we just thank you for everything that you're doing. You're an inspiration to everybody. Carl, any uh, any last big thoughts that you want to share? Thank you very much for that. Well, let's be positive and thank you very much for the Indianapolis Prize. I think it's it's shown us that you know we can make a difference. And I remember when I first heard of the Indianapolis Prize, I thought, what a great idea. And my colleagues wanted to put me forward. And I said, look, no chance. I work on obscure animals on an obscure island. It's the people who work on gorillas and elephants and lemurs are gonna win all the prizes. And yes, they have won some of them, but it's come to me. And the most recent recipient is working on seahorses. So it's basically showing that all wildlife is precious. It doesn't have to be an elephant or a blue whale. It can be a seahorse or a lesser night gecko. They're all amazing and we must do what we can to preserve them. So thank you very much indeed for what you're doing. Of course, Carl, and, and, and let me just make sure I follow up and, and thank you for uh, mentioning uh, Dr. Amanda Vincent, uh, the most recent recipient of the Indianapolis Prize. She is not included uh, in this new book, Saving Endangered Species. It was published uh, uh, before she received that. So if I uh, think forward a few years, she's gonna have the first chapter in the next edition. So that's my hope as we go forward. Carl, my friend, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Always great to see you. And I look forward to the next time you'll be here in Indianapolis. Thank you, my friend. Can't wait. I need to see you. You're a great bloke. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This podcast is a production of Johns Hopkins University Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.com dot edu slash journals.